Hello and a warm welcome to Living Fabulously with Bev. The mission for the show is to get to the heart of well-being through inspirational stories of everyday people, expert insights from a number of health and lifestyle-related disciplines, and exploration of topics that underpin well-being. If you want to take control of your well-being and prioritize yourself, then this is the podcast for you. I want you to feel calm, nurtured, and inspired so you can enjoy your life and your success. Do you have a chronic illness and are overwhelmed with advice or conflicting information? My book, Hope in a Dark Tunnel, gives you actionable steps to create your path back to well-being and positivity, hope and resilience without false promises. Head to www.hopeinadarktunnel.com. Join me on this journey and let's live the fab life together. Hello and welcome. It's Bev. And today my guest is Perry Jansen. Welcome to you, Perry. Hi, Bev. How are you? (laughs) Yes, good. It's great to have you on the show today. And Perry, what I wanted to just start with is tell us a bit more about yourself and what it is that you do. Okay. I am Perry Jansen and I live in Seattle, Washington. I originally am from Memphis, actually, which is clear across the country, and um, and have done a variety of things. I worked in politics for a while, and then I decided to become a psychotherapist. And so I've been a psychotherapist for about 28 years and also a transformational coach. So I do both psychotherapy as well as coaching. The other thing that I've done is I've taught college. I teach workshops and retreats. Uh, as kind of a hobby, but also part of something that I do also is that I'm an abstract painter and writer. So I've been a columnist in Seattle. Um, right now I'm doing columns, but I am doing writing and so forth too. So I have a kind of a wild creative side as well. Oh, that's amazing. So really multifaceted, talented lady. Thank you. <laughs> Let's talk about your journey, your, your sort of hero's journey, well-being and otherwise. Well, my hero's journey, the way that I, I think of it actually, is that well, I got ultimately into psychotherapy. I have always been a kid who has been thirsty for what I think of as the truth. And so no matter what I've been doing, I want to know the truth and I love the truth about things. So I studied, uh, I've been very passionate about other cultures, other traditions, other spiritualities, psychologies. And so, and this happened when I was really young. And uh, so as far back as I can remember, I just remember being a uh, major seeker and quester of the truth. And uh, my early childhood has some trauma in it as well. And so that sort of expanded my my desire for uh, understanding um, how to heal and how to move through things and so forth. And and so that, that also contributed, even though I had sort of this passion for the truth, as well as really passion for creativity. It's been kind of a mixture, a hybrid of creativity and truth and spirituality. And I would say that both creativity and different psychologies and different traditions understand different types of people 
is what really has helped me heal myself is what is what as well as what I feel like really contributes to healing other people. I don't feel like there's one way for all people at all. And um, the more that I have been sitting in front of each individual, I mean, I've probably been with hundreds of people, it's been through teaching or individual work. Each person has this amazing individual uniqueness and see. I mean, truly, that's not just like a cliche. It's really, truly something that I really see about people. And so that has also sparked my growth journey because I feel like my mission is really helping people reclaim that unique part when they've been through uh, life's many challenges. Yeah, I love that you talk about uniqueness because in our world here, conformity seems to be the thing, you know, that we need to conform. And how can we all conform to one standard when we are unique in, in, and beautiful in that uniqueness too? And Perry, I listened to one of your videos where you were talking about the inner critic and what really struck me as important and my takeaway sort of, sort of sat with me for days is why do we waste so much energy on this inner critic that could be used for creative or other pursuits, business or otherwise. Yes. So when we're children, uh, when we're babies, babies are not born uh, with this voice in the head. So babies don't uh, come out and they don't say like many women that I do, wow, my butt looks really fat in this diaper or um, but gosh, uh, as part of that inner critic is also comparing as well. And so babies don't sit there and say, well, gosh, that baby has better hair than I do, or it has more hair, or, or wow, that baby's crawling faster than me. And so what happens is because we are, the uh, I have a background in neuropsychology too. And so our brain cells are uh, exponentially growing and expanding when we are that young. We are just ripe for learning. And we're kind of like this amazing, unique blank canvas. And so depending on the environment that we're in, uh, with families, um, our churches, schools, our culture, and so forth, depending on that environment, we start to learn what uh, I think of as how parents think of things as good or bad, right or wrong, black or white, as well as the other thing is, is that children want to be seen, they want to be heard, and they want to be loved. And so children will figure out, oh, if I do this, then I'm going to get praise back. Oh, if I do that, or if I look that way, if my body looks like that, or if I say that, then I don't get love. I don't get seen. I don't get cared about. And so we start to learn uh, from our culture and from everything around us what's right, wrong, good, bad, even though it may not be right or wrong, good or bad, black or white, and that, because uh, I think of us as, and uh, life as many colors. And so we begin to develop this voice in the head, which is not a head that we're born with. You never see a baby, you know, like with that inner critic. And that's what turns into what's called the superego. So it's like the ego on steroids. And so this superego develops this voice in the head. And we also have other voices. I sort of think of it, I kind of call it the Greek chorus. The Greek chorus can have like a party in our head. and uh, But the superego has that critical, compare, judgment, 
black and white thinking. And it's developed originally to get love. Oh, if I do this, and so when I'm not doing this, because we also get it in schools quite a bit. And so the other, the, way, the other way that it's formed is that most schools are on a grading system. And most people want that A. And so they're going for the A. And so they learn like what art is. When we grade art, then we determine what's good art and what's bad art, where in actuality, it has nothing to do with that. So we're also constantly assessing ourselves. We want that A. And, and then some people give up because they feel like they're getting Fs in their head all the time. And so we, the way that we mostly are raising children is in that constant assessing. And we develop, unfortunately, we develop sort of this perfectionistic system to get love. And so that is, uh, you know, that's, I don't know that that's exactly answering your questions, but I'm wanting to give your listeners really an understanding of how that's developed because people are like, man, how did I get this, you know, voice in my head like this? This is crazy. And then a lot of people feel like, yeah, I'm never going to be able to get rid of this voice. And there are ways to work with it. But I just wanted to give your listeners a little bit of background about how it's formed too. I guess it's just really exhausting, you know, to have this constant inner battle around am I meeting or conforming or up to the standard and those type of things. And so I was thinking is if we've got that going on internally, what I find it interesting to juxtapose it from a mental health point of view is then why do we stay in our comfort zone when it's uncomfortable? You know, so we've got this inner voice going on. We know we want to do something differently, but we're in the space where nothing changes and it's just more of the same? So part of that is psychology and the other part of that is neuropsychology. So the psychological part is the dynamics in the family, the dynamics at school and culture and so forth, and what we get used to as normal. And so we start to identify, even though we know in one way as we grow older that it's not normal, there's a way that as children, we begin to develop a kind of normal. And, and so it could be vastly dysfunctional, but it's our normal. And so um, from a neuropsychological point of view, what happens is, is that so as we're growing and depending on, say, like how your family deals with conflict, um, so we learn how to deal with conflict or we learn how to deal with communication or we learn to deal with, oh, this is what's comfortable in my family. And so... From a physiological standpoint, what happens is, is that there are neural pathways that are formed in the brain as well as throughout the body, and neurons will fire um, in a certain way and in a certain pattern depending on the patterns in your family. And so that conditioning happens. And so when we're so say say we're having a fight with our spouse and. Um, And we have that same fight over and over again. And we respond to conflict over and over again. But then we read like some lovely self-help book and we have these vast aha moments. And 
but then we have that fight and we're responding in the same way. So that's what one of the things that I hear you asking is why am I doing the same thing or why people diet and can't end up losing weight or they go back and gain weight again. And part of that is that um, we have this biological response that's happening and it can be changed. It is a process and it can be changed. How we respond, how we uh, can shift from patterns can shift, but people have to go into the uncomfortable. And that uncomfortable is challenging our neurobiology as well as our psychology. So we can have these aha moments, but integration is kind of like when you're first working out and you never worked out before, it's such a pain. It's like you feel exhausted, you feel tired, you feel, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to do this. But if you can get through, then the benefits are on the other side. You feel stronger, you feel flexible, you have more energy. All of these things can make changes, but you have to go through that uncomfortable zone. And people don't like that uncomfortable, even though they are already uncomfortable. So it's really teaching people and really helping people, kind of holding their hand through the process of getting them through that uncomfortable period so that they can really you know, breathe in that uh, the benefits on the other side. But it's biological and it's psychological that we're grappling with at the same time. So that's why it's not as easy just to snap our fingers when we have the aha moment to integrate the change. The few things that I can hear there is, is you've got to be willing to go there, number one. So you've got to be willing to sit in that zone of uncomfort to get the benefits. And the other is you probably need some level of support around that because it's automatic. It's been, uh, like you say, there's pathways in the body. So you have to have some way of breaking that pattern, I guess, and supporting yourself in that way. And sometimes you'd need a professional to support you with it. I think there's some things where, like you, I love that you say that we accept certain things as normal, even though they're dysfunctional. And until you recognize that it's dysfunctional, you wouldn't really know, would you? You know, so you would just be doing more of the same. So that's, that's very helpful. Thank you. One other piece that I would add to that, Bev, is that really what it takes to have that shift is that what I have discovered as a therapist and, again, working with people for 28 years is that you have to move them into a deeper level of feeling they're uncomfortable. You actually have to move people in some ways for them to feel like, so say you're, you're grappling with someone who's dealing with weight issues. Usually like food is used as a number or say it's in relationship and people kind of numb out in a way that they're staying in that comfortable zone and there's a way in the head, it feels like it's comfortable. And so part of the process really, and the, the intervention from a neuropsychological and psychological point of view is getting people to feel like really feel the uncomfortable and really recognizing, beginning to recognize, Oh, I actually don't feel good. Oh, this doesn't feel good to me. Oh, this is painful. This feels icky. And so you're really, and that's sometimes why you need um, a therapist or coach or a support group or something like that to kind of help you get through and challenge yourself through that uncomfortable period of feeling like, ugh, I don't like this feeling at all. And, uh, um, and then moving people to uh, in a different direction. 
But if people are just grasping for a, a quick solution, if they're just grasping to fix it, a lot of times that grasping will make the problem worse. That's another thing that I see is that people are looking for band-aids and quick fixes when actually they need to get centered and find out what's really happening for them. That's so true because when I wrote my book, Hope in a Dark Tunnel, what I realized is that we've been conditioned by the Western medical system to name something, blame it, and give it a pill. So we are conditioned for silver bullet solutions to health issues. As I was working through my own well-being journey, I realized that it wasn't only in the physical sense, that there was this whole mental aspect, the emotional stuff, and the soulful stuff that I needed to integrate and find where I was in all of those places and bring equilibrium into all of those if I really wanted to be well. So I I just concur with what you're saying there is that I would say the work is worth the result. So yeah, for anyone listening, I'd encourage you to, to take those steps, you know, that need to be taken. It takes courage and, you know, you'll find that you're actually more resilient than you give yourself credit for. So yeah, find the right level of support for yourself. And Perry, I love that you're starting to talk about reclaiming your wild. And so explain what you mean by this and tell us why it's important. Reclaiming your wild at this point is for women. And um, so the reason why I came up with that, actually one of my favorite writers, John O'Donohue, he's kind of a, a mystical writer. And one of the things that he talks about is how we have forgotten our wild and In working with people all these years, one of the things that I see is that through different types of trauma, um, whether it's childhood or say people go through divorce or people have conflict in their marriage or, you know, the other aspect of it is that women are very much raised to be caretakers, to not actually focus internally on themselves. And so they're focusing on their children and their spouses and other people and volunteering. And so there's an external focus. And so one of the things that happens over a, over a long period of time, as well as I think of uh, a huge population that I'm working with too, are people uh, who are empty nesters, or they're having children who are about to graduate from high school. And you realize that there are parts of yourself, whether it's the creative part, peaceful parts, um, you know, uh, taking care of yourself, creative, adventurous, I mean, the whole range. So it's not just your wild, it's really about reclaiming all of yourself. And so my work in reclaiming your wild, and the reason why I came up with it is because I see women who, um, and not just not just women, but men too, but my focus here is women, is that all, along the way, that it's kind of like the lights have started to dim a little bit, or they've lost the sense of internal self, and they've lost all of these different kinds of parts. And so my work is oriented towards helping them. And I do it very creatively so that it's fun because psychology and working on yourself does not have to be this drudgery or like you're walking through sludge, but it can be fun. It can be creative. And in some ways that actually ignites the wild in us as well. And um, so I'm going to give you just one little example 
uh, I was working with a woman, I've worked with many women, I've worked with many people who really are having to deal with anger stuff. And mostly what we hear in our culture is just think positive, um, or just change your mindset. And so one of the things that that can do is that, again, it's focusing externally, and there's a way that you're actually having to face things internally. Like I worked with a, a woman who was, you know, really trying to be kind, really trying to be nice, and really trying to think positive, and yet she had reasons to be angry. And so we got this gigantic piece of paper, and I was just letting her just rip, say everything she needed to say, everything that she was angry about. And she could feel heat in her body, and she could feel she could feel that inner critic going, oh, I shouldn't say that. Oh, I need to think positive. Oh, I'm going to stay in a bad place. But really, it was like she was starting to feel her juice and vitality and movement in her body. And she was just, I had all these different colors of just letting her just write everything that she was angry about. And by the end of it, she was laughing her head off. We were giggling and we were laughing and she was rolling on the floor, just laughing her head off because she had been taught, just think positive, just be nice, just be sugar. And they say sugar and spice and everything nice, but really most women are, have to take the spice out. They're just, people want women to be sweet and nice. And so I was just letting her get her juice back and she was reclaiming her wild. And if anything, she was discharging the anger. She was letting it go rather than what happens is, is that it turns into stress patterns in the body. It's why one of the reasons why tons of chiropractors can make money. I know that they do a lot more than that, but we have these stress patterns in the body and part of that is contracting ourself, holding tension, holding our breath, clenching our jaw, holding ourselves back, editing ourselves. And so I'm wanting to free up that voice and free up those parts so that people can really reclaim all of those parts again. And there is an opportunity. It's not that we don't end up with scars, but because, and, and scars can be lovely, but, uh, but we can end up with scars. And at the same time, we can reclaim parts of ourselves, regardless of the range of life challenges. I mean, I've worked with Holocaust victims and uh, across the board, and and there's still light. I still see light, and and it's just getting that fire back as well. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. And I guess you know, Viktor Frankl's story is sort of illustrating that because he didn't allow that inner part of himself to be lost in the process of what he endured. Because I, I think I really recognize that a lot of people that I work with is by suppressing a lot of those aspects of themselves is what contributes to the disease or the illness in some way. And it either, yes. you know, that I'm not worthy of it or I don't, don't deserve this, what I'm, uh, you know, creating aspiration towards. So it's really interesting. And I think for women, like because we've played all these roles in our lives and like you mentioned, you know, a lot of them are now at the sort of empty nesting point and you start questioning. And also I think with age comes wisdom. And so what we thought was appropriate for us in our 20s, when we get into our 40s, we just don't want to be in that space anymore. So <laughs> it's really, it's, I think it's really yes. he healthy that we do do that. And I think it changes the way that you would actually uh, mother 
uh, children as well if you have those epiphanies earlier. So please keep talking about reclaiming all those parts of yourself because I think that's important, especially, you know, as a mother, you yeah, you do feel like you're in the back seat sometimes because everyone else's needs are ahead of yours. And yeah, sometimes I think we need to make the choice. And so you mentioned self-care there. So I see it as so integral to part of this of actually being creative as a part of that process. So what do you think are the elements of self-care that are really critical to supporting, bringing and reclaiming that part of yourself? One of the things that I will ask women a lot is, uh, one of the first things I'll ask is, uh, who is your primary relationship? And it's a trick question. And uh, they're like, oh, my spouse or my children or my dog or everybody but themselves. And really, in order for us to really know how to take care of ourselves, to really have true meaning, to really have true purpose, to be in like uh, the real mission, uh, our own inner, uh, mission that we have in life, we actually have to know ourselves. And really, the primary relationship, the first relationship is yourself. And so, um, and I think of it as the primary relationship. And so sometimes what I hear is, oh my gosh, I feel selfish, that's uh, narcissistic. But what I'm talking about is including the self. And so I continuously work with people around, particularly women, around including themselves in their own life. So even if they're in a relationship, a relationship is two people. It's not just one person. So if you're just focusing on that person, you're really not in relationship because in order to be in relationship, you do need to include yourself. And that is the first and most primary thing in terms of self-care is, how do I remember myself? Uh, Rumi talks about, uh, he's a poet, but Rumi talks about that the first thing that he did was remember himself. And so he would breathe and he would like uh, feel his own self and his own soul and his body. And the first thing upon waking and the priority was remembering, remembering yourself, reclaiming yourself. And so I, I have to kind of battle that a little bit a lot of times with women because their brain is wired um, after their upbringing to be caretakers mostly. And so in some ways it's about, um, so one of the first things that I do is um, I work with mindfulness practices, which really for me are embodiment practices. It's really working with getting people in their body. That's also the main way that people can intervene in, in terms of those neurological, the neuropsychological patterning is getting people in a deep, mindful, present, embodied state. So they're able to sense their own body. And so I work a lot in the beginning. And I think that that is first and foremost, the most important thing is practicing. And sometimes people get tired of it and they don't want to do it. But if you don't, then your unconscious is what will be making the decisions for you. When we are not embodied, our unconscious is really what's making the decisions. And that's why we can end up in relationships or jobs or all kinds of situations that we don't like really bad patterning is because uh, the more we're out of the body, the more we're unconscious. And then we're sort of at the effect of that in, in our present day. 
Does that make sense? That's so powerful, yes. I really connect with that because for me, I guess, you know, when because I'm obviously talking about self-care from perhaps slightly different aspect than you are, but what I recognise is that people feel that doing things for themselves is a big ask. So I love that you say that actually even being mindful and knowing what you need because if you if you're using your body as a great barometer, that's where the truth lies, isn't it? When you're saying yes, when you mean no, your body will be giving you some signals. So coming and getting back in touch with the body, I think yes, it's probably one of the starts of every bit of self care. Is what do I need? So yeah, thank you for that. I mean, the other piece of that is that if we are not doing practices to know who we are, then basically we're grasping for something like people will grasp for certain things that they feel like they need when, so say people add on five other activities that they feel like are self-care when in actuality, if they really felt into their body, that their body needs rest, then that will be ignored. And so, or, you know, say people are women are like, oh gosh, I need to get another job or I need to, but really in actuality, it's like, you can only know what you need if you know yourself. And a lot of people think that they know themselves, but they're not really in that deep, intimate relationship with themselves. Like they can... Uh, that they can find out, uh, they know so much about their children and spouses and friends and so forth. But when I'm asking women really internally deep questions about themselves, sometimes they're really at a loss. Like, gosh, how, how do you comfort yourself? You know, how do you, what would really comfort yourself in this moment when you're in this pain? And they're like, I don't, I don't know. So, so in terms of your question, Bev, in terms of tips, one of the things I'm going to give a, um, and it seems like a simple tip, but actually it's, it's multi-leveled. And so I really ask people that at the end of the day, at least like a starting point is to really ask themselves, how am I feeling and how did I feel throughout the day and write it down? It doesn't have to be some beautiful journal entry filled with pictures and, you know, scrapbooking and all that kind of stuff. It can be like, I, I actually, I, I use a little bit of a more of a crude term and I'll be like, throw up on paper. I just want you to throw up on paper. <laughs> I want you to say exactly what you're feeling. Just let it come out and um, and just write words. Don't worry about grammar. Don't worry about beautiful sentences. And really, in some ways, it's to be shredded or burned in some way. And so over a period of time, you can see like um, some people will have like cumulative stressors, but if that stress goes unknown and if we're just staying in the head with it, then we may not recognize that, oh, for the past six months, I have been under incredible stress. Like my head kind of knows that, but when you see it visually in front of your face, like, oh, stress, 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 there's something a little bit different. You're a little bit more in relationship. And it sounds like a really simple, obvious thing, but getting people to do it is a tough thing. Or th say uh, they continuously have fights with their spouse. But the thing is, is that they may not know that, wow, for the past month, 
that project was just wreaking havoc on them. But if they have that journal to go back and go, oh, you know what? This is what's really been going on all this time. And this is what I'm bringing to the argument or, or fight with my spouse. Or, you know, and so it's being, again, it's doing some sort of technique to keep yourself in relationship with yourself. And it can take less than five minutes, just something, you know, and it's not like many magazines, take a bubble bath or you have to meditate or you have to do all these different kinds of things. But it's like you need some kind of reflective process that in some way is going to be a little bit in your face to let you know how you're doing. What are you feeling? How often do people really ask themselves every day, how am I feeling? How did I feel throughout the day? Because it has such an impact on ourself, on our creativity, and our relationships and our work. Wow, very sound garden, Seth. Thank you so much for that, Perry. And you can find Perry Jansen at her website and also on Facebook, and these will be in the show notes for you. So, Perry, thank you so much uh, for lifting the lid on so many things today. I love that we've sort of covered a lot of ground today, but what I feel some of the big takeaways are is coming back to self and actually being willing to explore and reflect in the process. So thank you for being with me today. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Bev. I've really enjoyed it. I've loved our conversation. Thank you so much for listening. And I would love to know what you enjoyed most about this episode. You can connect with me on Facebook by searching for Living Fabulously with Bev or feel welcome to leave a message or comment on my website. You can get the links and any references from this episode in the show notes at my website, www.livingfabulously.com forward slash podcasts. Do you have a friend who you think deserves to live fabulously? Spread the love around by sharing the podcast with them right now. Until next time, be sure to live the fab life. The information shared here and in our programs and webinars should not be seen as medical advice and is not meant to take the place of seeing licensed health professionals.